Hello everyone, welcome to Le Vital Core Salon, the virtual lounge for frazzled type A's, imposters, and overscheduling addicts. If you're returning to the show, thank you, welcome back. And if you're new, I'm Kara Snyder. I'm the host and cellionaire of this here podcast. And although it's called Le Vital Core Salon, we are not in some 18th century French living room. And there ain't no powdered wigs up in here. But there are a lot of ideas and some inspiration flowing as I introduce you to women who are not letting bullshit or burnout slow them down as they're out leaving their stain on the world. Friends, I feel a little bit like Doctor Strange time traveling today. As this podcast rolls out, I will likely be standing in the lobby of WeWork in Bryant Park in New York City having my first sort of mini showing, I guess that's what you would call it, where I have a pop-up 33K task list project drop-off site and I'll have a table set up doing a little bit of craft working, but then also be displaying some of the task lists I've collected so far. And for those of you who haven't heard about the 33K task list project, it is my endeavor to collect 33,000 handwritten original task lists from women around the globe. And this can be like that one thing you needed to remember to do and wrote on a post-it, or it can be like all of these super cool lists that I've collected that you know, might be front and back of a page and scribbles in different directions and other women have nice neat columns and check boxes and some have artwork sort of drawn all around the sides of it and in different color pen and ink and things like that. The reason I started this project a year ago is I realized in eight years of private conversations with my clients, I make a lot of change but I don't make anything physical. And in those eight years of private conversation, I was hearing how much sleep has been lost, anxiety has been raised, and literally how much energy has been hemorrhaged thinking about all the stuff that we need to do or want to do. That said, I'm hoping to collect these lists and use them to make a larger art installation. So literally, I will be using these handwritten lists. And I still have a lot of ideas bumbling around about what that that final vision is. I, I certainly have some ideas and some things sketched out. But I'm kind of keeping that open at this point because it's gonna take me a long time to collect that many lists to be able to execute some of these ideas that I have. And I'm trying to make that process fun and make that useful because the, the problem I'm really trying to solve here is I'm trying to have women take a look at what they're putting on their list and how much of it is obligatory and we need to do or should do or have to do or must do. I think you know the language I'm getting at here versus what we really desire doing and, and how that is balanced in our life. And so... This is my shameless plug for the project, and this is my ask for all of you. If you have a task list, and when I say task list or to-do list, both one and the same to me, 
It can be something as simple as that thing you jotted down on the rim of a Starbucks coffee because you didn't have any paper handy. Send it in. That's a task list. Or maybe you have like some fancy pants, big colorful list. Send it in. It counts. And I know there are some of you that really keep your diary of everything that you've done and are bullet journalers and it's sort of terrifying, but I really want to encourage you and ask you, even just a page counts and you'll be contributing to a project that I hope down the road when I hit a critical mass, I am in the market for sponsors that will match every list that I collect with money to support organizations that promote women and girls. So please, if you have a task list, please mail it to me, Kara, at VitalCore. And the address is P.O. Box 453, and that's Hurley, H-U-R-L-E-Y, New York, 12443. So yes, women, I am asking for you to send basically the piece of paper that you might throw in the trash or recycling bin. And please know I will be super excited to receive it. And I know we were talking about hemorrhaging energy and things like that. And maybe I'm using these big fancy words today because I got to speak to Dr. Dara Cass. And let me tell you a little about Dara. She was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, and she completed her residency at SUNY Downstate and Kings County Hospital, and currently works at NYU Langone Medical Center in New York City. She's held leadership positions at many levels in the emergency medicine education pipeline, but recently stepped down to concentrate fully on achieving gender equity for women in emergency medicine. She envisioned Feminem as the professional development resource for all women practicing emergency medicine and is excited to see where this journey goes. And she's going to talk about the journey and some of the really cool problems that she's solving with her organization. And outside of work, she's raising three children, Hannah, Charlie, and Sam, with the help of her non-medical husband, Michael, and in a village of her own design. As a rebellious problem solver who never sort of fit into the corporate box, I deeply resonate with a lot of the things that Dara talks about in our conversation, and you'll see why as she talks about what Feminem is doing and how she's addressing some problems that impact women in emergency medicine and how she stepped outside of the machine to be able to do that. It's really cool, and it's really inspiring, and we are in the presence of a really quick, smart go-getter of a woman. So without any further ado, here's the interview with Dara Cass. Voila. Hey, Dara, welcome to Le Vital Core Salon. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. I, I feel like you have so many cool things going on in your career, at least from all of my stalking of, of what you're up to. So it'll be great to finally hear what's, what the real story is. <laughs> I I kind of like being cyberstalked a little bit. Um, it's a little freaky right now in this day and age, but from you, I'll take it as a compliment. <laughs> cool. Thanks. Maybe it would make sense for the listeners if we start from the beginning. How did you know you wanted to be a doctor? 
So the the story of me becoming a doctor is actually as much a non-story as it is a story. So my mom is a nurse, or she is a nurse. She was a nurse when I was a kid. Um, she was an emergency medicine nurse uh, when I was young. And she worked in a hospital that um, is still one of the highest uh, trauma-receiving hospitals in America uh, when I was growing up. I was actually born at that hospital. And uh, she used to come home when I was a kid and, you know, tell stories of work. And there were, you know, stories of the team coming together for the gunshot wound or a guy on July 4th who had a firecracker in his hand and forgot to let go, you know. Oh my God. As, as the fuse goes further and further down, you're supposed to throw the firecracker or <laughs> let go or something. I don't know, but you're certainly not supposed to hold on to it. And, um, you know, and, and so how we weren't allowed to go outside uh, during uh, a lot of these holidays insofar as we weren't supposed to get injured. And, you know, I always wanted to be a doctor. I always found those stories fascinating. I always wanted to know why things happened to people's bodies or why they responded in certain ways. And so I was kind of like a sponge for that information. So I had a friend in high school who was diabetic and I kind of was obsessed with the idea of insulin and how do you take it and what does it do? And I, I really had very no idea <laughs> of what <laughs> medicines did. So when I was in high school, uh, we were out to dinner and went to, we used to have this thing. We used to go to movies and, and the dinner and he um, started getting low in his uh, his sugar. And if you know anything about diabetes, uh, insulin is the treatment for high sugar. It actually brings down your sugar. It's the thing you give your body because you don't have it, which is why your sugars are high. So he um, he started having low sugar and he started getting very confused. And I didn't know anything about anything except for the fact that he had this medicine. So... <laughs> I said to him, take your insulin, right? Here, I'll be a doctor. I'll help you. And that was not the right choice. So I called his dad and I said, it's okay. It's okay. I told him to take his medicine. He took his insulin. And he's like, no, feed him food. And so I wasn't probably a very good doctor in high school, but um, I think now I'm pretty good at it. Thank you to, like for, for upping those skills and upping your yeah. game in that regard. <laughs> you know, you have to not be good, I think, at one point. And so I choose the not good um, to be when I'm in high school and, and totally untrained so that now I can I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's it's kind of like I had a friend who went to film school one time and after you graduate, and I was in the city at the time, you'd go to NYU to see student films and things like that. And he would always talk about, like, film school is where you get all the bad films out of your system. Right. <laughs> like, so high school is when you get all the bad doctoring out of your system, <laughs> I guess. Oh, my goodness. And then your mom must have loved that you became a doctor. Did you, like, go through the same hospital as well? I did. So, actually, my mom, you know... <laughs> My mom's really funny. She's actually um, kind of the perfect feminist mom for somebody that's not one of those, I want to say raging feminists. I think she's somebody that didn't ever identify as a feminist. Growing up, it was more like an equalist. Um, and so she didn't care that I became a doctor. It wasn't like this massive sense of pride. It was more like a, this is clearly what you were meant to do and you're really happy. Um, and so, you know, she was incredibly supportive of me going to medical school as much as she was supportive of my sisters doing other things that were really making, you know, good for them. Um, and, you know, when I became an emergency medicine doctor, I actually, so you go to medical school, right? And then you go to residency. So you don't choose the kind of doctor you're going to be when you choose to be a doctor. And that's actually a really interesting point about careers of women in medicine, because 
our medical education infrastructure creates a, an algorithm that allows that forces us to choose a career without actually knowing what we're buying, right? Because we don't different kinds of doctors have very different lives and um, different longevities and careers and stuff like that. So when I decided to become an emergency medicine doctor and I looked at different residencies, um, the one that I went to was the one that was affiliated with my medical school. And so I was really comfortable there, but it was also the residency that rotated. So we, we went to different hospitals to work as a labor force, if you will. And in exchange for that, those hospitals pay the institution some money and it's a good way to get, you know, educated residents at different hospitals. And so the res- the residency that I went to, I rotated through the hospital that she worked at, the one that had the, you know, gunshot victims and the ones that had the guys with the firecrackers. And so when I got there for the first day, you know, very few times in my life do I have these kind of overwhelming visions of achieving something or of the world kind of coming full circle. And there was something about walking in a room that my, my mother, who is no longer an emergency medicine nurse, um, had been in in her early career when she was pregnant with me waddling around the ER there, (laughs) you know, with all of her friends. And in her generation, you know, the nurses were women and the doctors were men. And so all of her stories were this, you know, this guy doctor or our friends, like the nurses were the girls that hung out with the boys. And this is how they grew up together, you know, and walking through that, that facility as the woman doctor, um, ready to take care of those gunshot victims and firecracker fingers, as the physician was actually super, um, it was very transformative actually. And probably one of the cooler things that I have deliberately gone through in my life, because if I hadn't picked the residency, it wouldn't have happened. It wasn't an accident. Um, but it was, it it definitely was a very cool experience. I love the sense, like you came full circle, like there you were like in utero hanging out in this hospital. And then it comes all the way around to where you're the female doctor walking in the door busting through and just kind of like saying, throw them at me. Let's see what we can get. Yeah. And I think busting through is probably a good segue to ask you to talk about what you do as the CEO and founder of Feminem. So uh, I think that to know about Feminem, you have to know a little bit about the story that got us there. So uh, after residency, I I became an attending, which means that you're the supervising doctor at a residency at a, at a hospital and started a residency. And that's a training program. And so I was able to do education and clinical care. And, you know, I also had, you know, I just graduated from residency and I was married and I was ready to start having kids. And so I had chosen an environment that I thought would be really supportive of somebody that knew all these things were coming. And so I started a, res- uh, a job that had a, a schedule that I thought I could handle with knowing that I was going to get pregnant and go on maternity leave, an environment that would develop me academically. And I was ready to go. Like I was, I was, I had the plan, right? I, I knew what I was going to do. And it was a good plan and it worked. Um, but as I got a little more informed of the house of medicine broadly and, you know, other institutions and became more nationally involved in women in medicine, I saw that there were problems out there that if you weren't me, and by that, I mean somebody that busts in the first day and says, I'm here, uh, you really had a harder time, right? It was a lot to plan and, and navigate. And you really had to advocate for yourself at a time when you're pretty vulnerable. And I also am a pretty good connector, meaning that I, I 
know people. And after I know them, I remember things about them that connect them with other people. And so after about five or six years, I became somebody who other people kept asking, not just how do you do it? Because I don't want to act like I've done anything special, at least not to that point, but that I was somebody that could package what I had done in a a bite-sized portion and give people a couple of uh, pieces of advice on how to navigate specifically the career of women in emergency medicine around the expected lifestyle change of having children in a career, right? Like that's a very predictable algorithm with a few non, uh, like a few variables, depending on who you work for and the environment and the way you got paid that we could figure out together. And I also was right. What? I was going to say, right, because it's not a surprise that women are going to procreate. Right. So I, I use this all the time in my lectures. It, like, we can expect that maternity, that women are going to stop having babies and that it's over, that we've, we've, we've done that, you know, it's, it's over, and not plan for it. Or we can remember that it's going to keep happening forever, and we can start <laughs> acting like it's part of our society, you know? Um, and so that's, and we can, you know, so that was kind of the first piece. And the other was that I was doing a lot of education where there were newsletters and there were women's groups and everyone was coming together during these meetings. And yet between the meetings or after the newsletter finished being published once in an email blast, nobody remembered what was the content. There was no institutional memory for the stories. And I said, how can I kind of fuse that? And it wasn't really a deliberate. It was more like a, like a light bulb. And I have these kind of weird light bulb ideas where I was like, wait a minute, why isn't everyone talking to each other? Why aren't we creating some sort of a way that people can archive the way that they've done it too? Why do I have to solve everyone's problems? And by that, I mean, there's more of me out there than just me, but I'm the one that everyone knows. And so I created this website um, and I named it Feminem or Feminem, which is, they're both ways of saying it, um, both because it's a cool name, right? It slides off your tongue and it was a very great fusion name and it got the point across. And we ver- we made it into a verb, and we've actually trademarked it at this point. But nice. uh, yeah, yeah, because why not, right? And the idea is just that it's it started as a resource for women in emergency medicine to never have to stand alone, right? That if there was something going on in their world, they could find an article that had been published by somebody before them with different problem with the same problem but a different life that they could then show to their boss and say, "Well, this is how they did it at that institution," right? And so this is the precedent. Let's do it too, right? It takes the burden by institutionalizing bias because that's really what it comes down to. You take the burden off of the person that's being oppressed, right? That's true for everything. And so feminine as an entity existed in its first place to absorb that energy and to provide as a pass-through for all of the women that needed it. And then I said, we'll see what it goes. Like, if you want a mentor and you're a woman in medicine, maybe we'll figure out how to make that marketplace on Feminem. And we've created some very cool, um, like, uh, channels, not forums, but specifically, like, pieces of Feminem that, that do address bias in a really non-traditional way. And I, I, we can talk about it now or even later, but um, 
there are a lot of biases that women face in the workplace, right? So we know that there is like likability bias, which means that women have to be both likable and competent to be successful, whereas men only have to be competent. And that ability to remain likable while proving your competence is almost an anathema of itself, right? It's, it's, yes. it's contradictory, right? So how do we get it so that women can be considered competent and not have to promote themselves, right? How do you address likability bias? Well, what we did was we created an honor section, right, on Feminine because women were winning honors, but nobody knew it. And you can't, like, blast out, hey, guys, I just got Clinical Attending of the Year Award at my institution, or I got Teacher of This or this national recognition, and you can't put it on your Facebook page and not be called a bragger, right? Yes. And men can, right? Men can do that culturally. Yes. And we're like, dude, high five. Good for you. But for women, it's like, oh, she's so full of herself. Or who did she have to step on to get that award, you know? And yes. so by creating a neutral channel, which was, hey, guys, we've created the Feminine Honors section. If you know any woman in emergency medicine that has won an award, please send it to us and we will publicize it, right? So we started getting submissions from uh, women and from their bosses or their colleagues being like, hey, just letting you know, this is what happened. We even started trolling like the newsletters, like so any <laughs> major like local paper who would be like, hey, Dr. Cass saved a guy under a bridge. You know, here's the story at five. And we would call her and be like, me or anybody and be like, can we put this in the honor section? And the person would be like, of course you can. Thank you. And that oh, I deeply love this. I mean, one of the unintended consequences of starting this podcast was when I was getting to celebrate the accomplishments and the achievements and the wisdom of other women, you know, throwing it up on Facebook or sending it out through Twitter and then seeing what happened, like when the women around my guest kind of come forward and they're like, that was awesome. I didn't even know that about you or, and just like loving them up. It feels so good, doesn't it? So good. So that's exactly, um, that was one of the ways. Another, the other thing that I like to talk about a lot is that, so we know in all professional circles, there historically have been not an underrepresented, an underrepresentation of women on stage, right? Uh, especially in academic environments. So if you, uh, if you look at a conference, it's not unbelievable to have a manal, right? A, a panel comprised yeah. of all men. Yes. Right? And there are now these movements against manals where women or people will say, men will say, I will not um, be on a panel with all men as a, as a stand for, you know, equality, which I think is great. Um, but the question is, how can you change the culture around conferences and get women on stage without affecting the idea of tokenism, right? Without yes. making people think they're changing their standards. And so about six months into Feminem, we had a po we had our own kind of Google Hangout, what would have been a podcast in fairness if we had had a podcast then, but we didn't, which was about um, a, a conference organizer, organizer who had no women in a conference. It was a critical care and emergency uh, emergency medicine. So it was a very specific conference. And he's a, he's a great guy. I mean, we know him well. We obviously had a great conversation with him. And we did it on the back of him knowing us and respecting us as change makers in the field and, and approaching equity 
around gender from a data-based and relatively emotion-free place, right? So when he, when somebody called him out on Twitter and said, why do you have no women and, and kind of started a fire, he basically retorted with, I will address this, but I want to do it through feminine and I want to be able to bring my case. I want to defend what happened. And his defense was genuine, right? So it was, yep. it was his truth, which was that he tries to put on the best conference he can and, and he had invited a, one or two women or whatever it was and they said no, but that, you know, there were no women that met his criteria. And his criteria were that they had to be, uh, you know, well-versed in the field and experienced presenters and they he had to see them himself. Like he had to personally vet the presenter as being qualified. His idea was that he had done this in the past where he'd had unqualified people and he had taken a leap of faith and they weren't very good. And so his new standard to put on the best conference he could was that he had to personally vet each person. And so he went to people he knew and he asked them, well, there's another bias there, right? That's selection bias right. in a way that is you only pick who you know and who you know looks like you, right? And so when we had this conversation, another light bulb moment went off and I was like, wait a minute. I'm like, are you just telling me you don't know enough people? And he's like, well, I know everybody. And I was like, really? I don't think you do. Because I know a lot of girls. I know a lot of binders <laughs> full of women, you know? Like, I feel like there's women you don't know. And he was like, well, if you could introduce me, I'd be happy to, you know, meet them. And I'd, I'd be happy to even mentor younger women into the point where I think that they would be qualified to be on the stage. And so back to being a connector, I really had this light bulb moment where I was like, how can I show him all of these women? And how do I do it in a way that's free of bias? So we created something called the Feminine Speakers Bureau, um, which is not really a speakers bureau in its traditional sense insofar as we don't get a fee for anyone speaking, right? And these are mostly unpaid speaking events for the career development of the women speaking and the people that are in the audience. Um, but what it is, is it's kind of like um, like a Rolodex. So it's a searchable database of women speakers in emergency medicine, mostly, although there are people on it who are not in emergency medicine, who have kind of like peripheral talents that would speak to an emergency medicine audience. So let's say like a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a cardiologist or something like anyone who might even fit within a conference planner's idea of what women in medicine or people in medicine would want to hear. And the database, so you can, they like, look like index cards and you can, um, you see their name, their institution, like whoever they work for, uh, you see a blurb, just like a, a picture of them. And then when you go on their bio, if you click on them, there's a full bio of what they, who they are and what they speak on, like any speakers bureau would have. And embedded is actually a video or an audio link if the person provides it. And it's entirely self, uh, submitted. So all of the speakers on it have put themselves out there, which also neutralizes or addresses a bias that women don't ask and that women don't put themselves out there. Um, and so it's entirely self-submitted and they say how far they're willing to travel. And what it really does is it really kind of like smacks in the face of, I don't know any women because we have now used that speakers bureau. I mean, not just ad nauseum, but we publicize the heck out of it. Because it's a great way to say to an organizer, before you start looking at your conference, while you're thinking of the people that you know, get to know these other people, right? Look at their bios, watch their videos, look at their backgrounds, and I promise you're going to find one or two people that you didn't know existed, and they're going to surprise you. 
And it has been arguably our most effective uh, effort at Feminem to directly and immediately neutralize bias in our field and move towards gender equity. Um, yes. Because we have gotten conferences that had no women on stage to 50% women in one year uh, without anybody saying boo about the qualifications. Yes. Because, yeah. <laughs> this so is it, fantastic, it, Dara. Nobody's, like, my, you know, my thing on, on this is that, you know, and I see this now with a little more passion than my husband wants me to, you know, as, as the person that I talk to the most, he laughs at sometimes, uh, <laughs> is that I do this kind of without apology and I don't ask anyone to do me any favors, right? So, like, I don't care if you want to make me happy, right? If you have a conference that has no women and you need more women because it's the just thing to do for your audience and it's the right thing to have as an educator and a conference organizer, then look and see who's out there. But don't do it for me, right? So I don't I don't ask for permission. I barely ask for forgiveness anymore. But um <laughs> you know, I don't I don't act like this is this is a and an, this happens for me, right? This is for the movement of the culture in our field. This is amazing. And I think how inspiring it must be to be a doctor in the audience who is a woman seeing a woman on stage and knowing that that is not a door that's only slightly ajar for some people. Yes. Uh, And I think that, that we're getting there. I, I, you know, I think that the things we've done are amazing and they are impactful and we're still have plenty of times where the door only feels slightly ajar. So I think that there are a lot, there's a lot more to do. Um, and there are plenty of people to still convince that this is a good idea. <laughs> I don't know, Dara, you sound quite convincing. <laughs> I know the problem is I haven't spoken to any of them. That's why I'm doing all these podcasts. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And it's so funny, like how our worlds are sort of circling around each other. Cause I was introduced to you by Dr. Jeanette Wolf up in Western Massachusetts where I also knew Angela Lucier. And so I'm hearing you talk about your Speakers Bureau and thinking of like all of the crazy synergies that the two of you could have as well. <laughs> so we actually had Angela at our first, con- so we had our first conference last year, uh, which was the Feminine Idea Exchange. It was a kind of, if you think about it, it's kind of like um, makers meets Ted Med women, if that existed as a fusion <laughs> entity. And it was amazing. It was 250 women um, from, a, well, I should say 237 women and 13 men from around the country, (laughs) around the world, uh, coming together for a conference um, to talk about the truth of being a woman in medicine, a woman in humanity, a man in medicine, a person, right? Like, it kind of, you realize how expansive these topics are. And Angela was there because one of the things that I think is really important, and Angela's speaking sisterhoods, you know, this idea of kind of bringing women together to learn how to be better speakers as as communities and supporting each other is really important. Um, you don't have much ability to affect the world if you don't have a voice. So and true. Uh, however you choose, so however you choose to, to exercise that voice, you have to know you have one. And so one of the the goals of our first conference was to remind every person in the audience that they have a voice and they have something to say. And so in order to do that, we needed to have uh, like speaking coaches and the idea that there were people out there that could help you find your voice and understand how to curate it. And so Angela is awesome. Yes, um, she and is. I, yes. 
and I and I'm a huge fan, and I think that I will never, I will, I will always for, thank her for being there for our first conference, um, because I think that that was a really important partnership to set up early. Amazing, amazing. I love all of this work that you're doing on behalf of women, and I I have to ask, like, where did this fire come from for you? Is it is it just in you? Is it your problem solving nature? Where does it come from? So, so it's in me. I think that there's a, um, there's a thing I say about kind of my energy level and that I could probably tell you about the best avocado to pick out at the supermarket and you'd be like, oh my God, how have I not looked at avocados <laughs> like this, you know, <laughs> for my entire life? Uh, I, I do have a, a way of kind of, I, I do very few things that I don't believe in. Uh, I just like let them go. And, but I believe in a lot of things. You should sit here and talk politics for me for an hour. You will probably will. I feel like these days we could probably talk for a day. <laughs> right. So I think that um, I I really I believe passionately in, in justice and, you know, and not that I rally around all these kind of like social justice things. But I, I feel like I do poorly around stupidity and about an ignorance and chosen ignorance is even worse. Um, but I think that, you know, gender equity is something that is it's so obvious to me that society, you, you can't ignore it, right? We can't have a society that trains women as professionals, that expects them to earn an income, that, you know, that can leave them flat if something happens to their partner and then act like everything else is still their problem to solve. Like that just is not, it's not even that it's not fair. It makes no logistical sense. It's not financially responsible. It's not societally beneficial, right? And so yes. I, I, I don't do well with, um, with that. And I think that a lot of these things are problems we can solve now and we have to solve now. I mean, today we're watching the undoing of man, literally <laughs> like who's going to be there to pick up the pieces, but women and they're going to work and they're going to have families and they're going to be professionals and they got a lot of stuff on their plate. And so let's make it a little bit like easier to survive. That just kind of makes sense to me, you know? And hearing you break it down and talk about it so simply, it does make sense. Like none of these things that happen are are a surprise in the lives of women, right? Like we're definitely thrown curveballs by life, but many women, and you would probably know the percentage better than me, will go on to have a family, you know, so they are going to have babies. They are going to step back from work. They are going to then have to take care of those babies and, and manage marriages and and all sorts of things that just get sort of tacked on to this is what you do in the second shift after you leave your your first shift at your at your occupation. And it's actually, you know, so my husband, so I've surrounded myself through with good people, I think, for most of my life. I've been really lucky like that. And some was by accident and some was by choice. My husband is a fierce feminist, but not in, again, not in the way of like, you know, Gloria Steinem, although I do adore her. He's not walking around with a feminist shirt. He's more like, <laughs> there's a bug. Are you closer? Because I think you can kill it, you know, kind of thing. And so um, he he talks about, you know, when I had um, maternity leave, either the second or the third time, whatever it was, he was like, you know, and he's never really taken much leave. Uh, his His job is supportive in theory, but it's not the kind of place where men take months and months off, you know, it's just not like that. So, uh, he looks at me and he says, you know, some days I'm, I'm jealous. He wouldn't use the word jealous, but he, he's like, women get a chance, you know, or whatever, a chance, an opportunity to look at their careers and say, do I want to stay or do I want to go? Right. 
here I have a kid and society has said women are still plus ones in the workforce, even though we know they're not. So women somehow get told that they have to make a choice to go back to work or stay at home. And a lot of it is a financial choice. Is it worth it financially to pay for caregiving versus not? And that's a whole other conversation that we can have. Uh, but, you know, do women go part time? And like you just said, you know, there's shift first shift, second shift. Well, he's like, nobody's ever given me a choice for a second shift. You know, everyone presumes that from the time I turn 21 to the time I die or retire, I'm going to work every day for the rest of my life. Right. Yes. And you look at it through that lens and you're like, well, it's not fair to them either. Right. Like there are plenty of men who are natural caregivers. And we ignore them. And then we punish them when they choose that. You know, there are plenty of women that are unnatural caregivers and we force them into a peg, into a a hole that that makes no sense for them, you know? And so I think that we need to kind of go back to the whole landscape and say, first of all, working 80 hours a week doesn't do well for anybody. Second of all, society (laughs) by which one person works and one person cares is not sustainable on any any world we live in now and yet so we just said okay you still work partner a usually the man who makes more money or whatever it is partner b you're the wife or the second husband or the wife of the wife or whatever you are but you're going to be the expendable which means that you work because you want to or you work because you have to but you also manage the caregiving you also have to figure out how to be flexible you also have to figure out how to satisfy your boss and your children and your partner and be the caregiver, right? Because you're the, like, everything is kind of, you're downhill. And you know what rolls downhill, right? <laughs> and so... You can say I, it on I, this podcast. <laughs> right. I mean, I love an explicit rating. Um, and so at the end of the day, that person is getting shit on constantly, right? And you expect them to be whole and happy. And so I think that it doesn't work for either person because the person doing the shitting is like sitting there like, hey, I'm working really, really hard. And I'm the one, you know, who has to keep the job to keep the insurance and I have to pay the mortgage. And, you know, jobs are not easy and bosses are hard and, you know, everyone needs an outlet and people need hobbies and you need to see your kids and you need to know that you're not going to work on the weekend, except our computers make us available all the time. And so I just think that the whole thing needs to be revamped. And a lot of the reason why I think Feminem has been successful is because we don't act like it's a a woman's problem to fix it or a woman's problem um, that we only need to solve women's problems. Um, Some things we do, right? All the biases I spoke about before, about the things we've created, those are women's issues. Those issues affect women. But when you go to like the work-family conflict and the work-life balance, like, yeah, there's a lot more on women for the most part, but that's a problem we all need to solve. Absolutely. And I know we were talking about this earlier, um, Bridget Schulte's book, Overworked, and I'm going to double down on that recommendation for you because I think it really does hit on exactly what you're talking about, that this is not a woman's problem. Like raising children is not solely a woman's issue anymore. And you know, I think men like your husband, like my husband, Craig, are coming around to like, we're going to have to divide up all the things that need to get done around a household differently. And there really aren't a ton of patterns on how to do that. And it's it's a lot of negotiation just in the moment, um, which I imagine you have three kids, correct? I do. 
Yeah. So I imagine the level of navigation and negotiation that has to happen just in your household must be bananas some days. Some days. I, you know, I, um, I'm really fortunate. You know, this is where I kind of segue into the, and I don't, you know, when I write the book about how to manage a family, it'll look a lot like Ivanka Trump's book where it's like completely tone deaf to what most of society has insofar as, you know, I can solve most of my problems with a resource if I can find it, right? So, and I mean that because I'm a doctor and because I am in a city that has unlimited resources available, right? In New York City, you can find somebody to deliver you the thing that your daughter forgot to finish her homework and you have two other kids at home and they're asleep and I need a piece of plastic. I can probably get somebody to deliver it to my house, right? So I can solve those <laughs> problems. And those are real problems moms have, right? Absolutely. Because they, do you take two kids and put them in the car? I mean, I had a... So one of my kids, uh, my third child, my Sammy Cass, uh, decided to swallow a quarter one day to become oh, no. a piggy bank. And I needed to run him to the ER to get an x-ray because at least that much I know. <laughs> and I have an emergency room across the street from my house. It's not, I have a ha- hospital across from my house. I don't work there, but, um, and so I needed to get there. So I, my husband was on a work trip. And so how do you not wake up two other kids and make them come with you to the ER? Well, a, it's across the street, and B, I had a neighbor that could come and sit in my house for the two hours it took. So I think for me, the success in being a working parent has been both um, the fact that if is clean lines of responsibility in work, meaning that my husband takes care of certain things and I take care of certain things. And when we do that, we don't check how the other person is doing it, right? So if you really care how... Um, what like how the uh, groceries get delivered from which store they get delivered, then the grocery delivery is your job, right? But if there's food in the fridge, that's the goal. Like you just want food in the fridge. So we kind of like own our landscapes. He cares a lot about our tech and Wi-Fi in the house. And so he owns all of that. Whereas I care very much about our kids' doctor's appointments. So I take care of that. And so um, I think a lot of it in our family is defining spaces that are yours and then not, second guessing how the other person does that, you know? And I also think that that goes double down for my childcare providers. So I have had nannies and I've had au pairs, um, as a working emergency doctor, uh, having somebody in my house who can work crazy hours, although not an exorbitant number of hours is critical to my flexibility and sanity. Right. So if I needed to go out to dinner, like for a work dinner, from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m., I don't have to have my nanny here till midnight or whatever time it would be um, because my husband isn't home or whatever's going on. And so if he can come home at 8.30 or 9, then that person could just go to their bedroom instead of having to go home, you know, whatever. So, but when it came to having childcare providers, um, one of the things that was really important to me was that I if I cared how my kids, like what they ate for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, we would have a very clear conversation and we'd have a menu and we would have a conversation. But if I didn't, then I don't get to second guess how the food gets made. Like, it's like, are they hungry? Is it well balanced? Maybe it's not what I would have made, but like you choose your battles, you know what I mean? And so I think that if you're somebody that's outsourcing um, efforts on a fair amount, you need to decide where the outsourcing kind of ends and then leave it alone. Because um, people that try to manage all of that, they kind of get overwhelmed, right? Maybe yes. that's a lesson in the book. I don't know if it is, but it should be. And this um, is super important for this tribe to hear. I think yeah. even me as a recovering type A perfectionist, right? 
Like I think right. most of the days it's locked down and I'm getting better and better. And I don't know, the 40, my forties feel great. I feel like it's so much more, the balance of, of keeping that in recovery is so much easier. It's not as much of a fight as it used to be. Yeah. But I, and I think that's a lot of women in the Levital Corsalon tribe definitely are either perfectionists or recovering perfectionists. And I guess what I want to ask you is how do you know when to pick those battles and when to not? So for me, it's um, a, if it's something that's really important to the other person in your life, let them have it unless it's something that's more important to you. Right. So um, my husband loves the movies uh, and that's a crazy thing that's annoying, except he also requires me to go with him half the time. <laughs> I don't care about the movies. And so there, I, most of the time, I don't even care what movie I see, right? So I let him pick the movie. That's a dumb thing to think about. But if I'm going to go to the movies, I don't really want to go in the first place. Why do I care what movie I see? Um, I think it, you have to know your audience. And that goes back to, I mean, anything in parenting, I think, is that. Um, but you you have to know what really, like, you have to know what's really important to you. And then hold on to those things and make them be true, right? Everything can't be that important to you. Um, it's just not worth it. It's like, um, I'm trying to think of a good example. I don't care what my kids eat for lunch. I don't enjoy giving baths. I care that they get a bath most of the time. Right? <laughs> um, I love your honesty on that one. Right. But I, um, I'm trying to think of something I do care about. Um, I, well, I mean, so I have a child who had a liver transplant. That's another whole podcast. I can't even imagine dumping that on you right now. Oh, my goodness. You're right. <laughs> so why am I saying that? Um, I manage everything about his medical care to a T, right? And what I mean by that is I don't, I don't go to every doctor's appointment. Like if he has to go to a pediatrician appointment or a screening medical, like, you know, blood work or whatever, a lot of times my nanny will take him. Um, but when he gets there, they call me. Got right. it. So you get so to if be I'm there. At work or if I'm somewhere else, um, and then the doctor gets in the room and she examines him because he needs to be there, but I actually don't, right? And so I can have because I have a good relationship with my my nanny or my au pair, whoever we have at the time, um, I'm able to say, listen, you can go and be me, like be my proxy. But then when the doctor gets in the phone, gets in the room, they pick up the phone, they call me, and I speak to the doctor directly as if I was there. That is not something I'm willing to give up anytime soon, right? Um, there's just too many risks on the gap of communication. Uh, and that, so that's, that's, that's a thing that I own. Right. Um, but I don't care if they take an Uber or if they walk, you know what I mean? Like if my nanny's taking them to the doctor's office, I don't care how they get there. So I guess that's like, I guess that's a kind of an example of not an extreme example. I think of something I, I don't let go of. Um, I don't, um, I don't care if my kids wear matching pajamas at night. Like, these are not things I care about. Um, other th- I'm, I'm trying to think of things that people care about that I might not or things I do. But um, I know what I care about, and, I, and I'm pretty good at letting go of the things I don't. That's awesome. I love, I love how you've just cordoned off, like, what you're good at, where, like, the own your landscape. Right. Kind of thing is so, is so fascinating to hear. It sounds like communication has to play a big part in all of this working, though. Yes. And again, I think that the, the really important relationship is, is if you're a working person, 
but a working woman. And so you're also kind of the lead parent of your family. That communication is critical between you and your child care providers. I, uh, there is, um, there's nothing good comes of unspoken, uh, like issues between a, a parent and the child care provider. It, it, you need a direction, right? So it's not only that I need to tell my, you know, the, the nanny or my nanny or my au pair or my child's nanny or au pair, or however you define it, you know, when something is, when I need something to happen that isn't happening or whatever it is. But the same thing is true in the other direction, right? So maybe I wasn't so clear about what time I was coming home and they wanted to go out to dinner with their friends. Or before we set the days off for the week, I say, is there any day that is important to you? Because if you have plans with your friends, tell me now. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's also important that everybody feels like they have a voice. I mean, that goes back to the original statement. And that goes for my husband also. I think that that's, you know, he needs to be able to say that this is something that's important to him. So maybe it's education, right? Like with my kids. So when we were choosing what schools to send them to or who goes to parent-teacher conferences. There are a lot of things that, that, that are allowed to be important to him. And he has to know that he can say that before I take over everything, right? Like <laughs> I'm going to... I live my life by default, absorbing all of the things that have to get done. And sometimes I forget to ask him if he wants to do any of them. You know what I mean? Um, and so that's another important communication skill. And that's important to add. And I love the idea of you just kind of being this big old filter. It's like right. everything's filtering through you. And it's true. I Everything rolls downhill and I am downhill. You know what I mean? Well, and it sounds like you're carrying the mental load that I think is really common in a lot of households. Like, you know, I remember, I remember pointing out to my husband, like we were having a lot of conversations about this concept of mental load, like who sits and, and is using all of the brain space all the time. And, you know, maybe I know the, the population that I am having private conversations with as a strategist definitely are probably skewed in a lot of ways. But I think most of the time that kind of mental load gets borne by the woman and, and where, you know, like, and I remember taking my husband through this, like I was trying to explain this concept to, to him and, and Craig really truly is, he's a feminist in the bug killing category, like your husband, (laughs) you know, where it's not this like outward thing, but he's very conscious about when he's putting together panels, he wants to see if he can not only have women on the panel, but people of color and maybe women of color, like, wow, let's go crazy. And so he thinks about these things, but the idea of a mental load was something so foreign. Like I remember him just kind of like cocking his head and looking at me. And I, I ended up finding a a comic out there on the internet to try to like put it in other words because I was having trouble explaining it. But like we as women are those filters and there is like, there is a price that we pay in terms of energy and focus and creativity for carrying that load. Yeah, so I'll give you a, a, there's a, a, there's a story that happened this week in my family, right? So, um, so there's this concept of emotional housework, right? Which we know happens, um, at work a lot where the women are the ones that remember the birthdays and, you know, who got promoted and they kind of order lunch and take the notes and all this kind of stuff at the office, right? And so we know that women exert more of this emotional housework at work and so they are tired, for things that are not tangible, right? They're not, they're, 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 they're working hard on things nobody cares about, except they expect to get done. Yes. Yeah. Now, if you think about a home, that kind of emotional vortex 
of owning the journey of everyone in the family. So, you know, whether it's nighttime and each of my kids making sure they get to bed in a space that, like, you know, kind of the way that they get to bed well or whatever, um, can be exhausting by the end of the night. So like mornings and evenings can be exhausting, especially when they're the things you do outside of your regular job, you know? So this week, right, in our family, my son who had the liver transplant, which you now know and is not the bomb that I'm going to drop on this podcast, uh, was <laughs> having a complication. And he looks amazingly well, but the story is actually interesting. So he, my half of my family went to Florida for uh, Thanksgiving. My daughter and I stayed home because she didn't want to miss school. So my husband and two boys and our au pair went to Florida because he got the au pair in the, you know, in the <laughs> separation of vacation. And, um, and they went to Florida and they had a great time. And my son, who had liver transplant, had gotten blood work done right before he left. And he was super sick the week before, and that's a normal five-year-old thing to do. But the blood work comes back, and it's not good. It's just not right for the transplant, and there was things that had to be done. But I wasn't with him, right? So um, Michael was, my husband. And so I kept FaceTiming them because I had now this kick-up of the emotional energy of being the caregiver for the family um, that would have been settled if I was able to be with him and able to take him to the doctor and do all the things I would normally done. But he was literally in Florida. And there was no reason to bring him back. And he was feeling fine. And so for a week, I bore the emotional burden of my son having a complication, but I could do nothing about it. And I wasn't even with him. And for women, a lot of times the, the benefit of being the emotional caregiver in a family is that you get to be the benefactor of the first passive emotional, like, like, um, exchange, right? So a lot of times, like if you're the person that is fixing every boo-boo, you're also the one that gets the first kiss after the boo-boo is fixed, right? Ah, so I, yes. You know, we, we kind of, we know, we exchange that, that cost benefit ratio to say, well, I'm also the person that is the, I don't say the hero, but I'm there to solve the problems. I am there when the problem emerges. I think of the solution. I I'm there. I'm the one, you know? So I wasn't able to be with my son for the week. And so I spoke to the doctors and I had the plan and he comes back and we repeated his blood work and we, it wound up that he needed a biopsy, which is totally fine. And we had to deal with it. And then now we're on a, he's totally doing great. Um, and it's fine. And everything is exactly as it should be. But when the whole thing ended, I looked at my husband and said, I'm exhausted. And he was like, why? We're fine. I mean, it's totally solved. We had a problem. It's fixed. It's over. And, you know, for 12 days, I was in this overwhelmed emotional wreck because the strategy that I had in place to, to kind of be able to absorb the vortex of anxiety within my family weren't I wasn't able to employ them how I normally would and um I, I kind of ad hoc some stuff to make it work and ultimately like I said it was all okay but that hurricane of, of emotional energy that you absorb as the core member of your family um especially when you're somebody who is uh you're paying attention to all the things that have to get done you're kind of a control freak you're kind of somebody who um doesn't miss anything anyway, you know, um, that can become, you know, overwhelming. And when it's something that is so objectively true, like you're not making it up, right? I wasn't making up that he had a lab abnormality. I wasn't making up that he needed a blood test. I wasn't making up that he needed to go to the doctor. Those were truths. And so I do a lot of CBT in that time Yep. where I, I say, okay, these are facts. They're in, they, these are facts and evidence, right? He had a transplant. This is a complication. I'm going to deal with it. How I choose to emotionally respond to those facts is in my control. 
Yes. Um, and so I, and I don't always do such a great job and I give myself permission to cry and I give myself permission to be, you know, lean on other people. And I have my, my core group of people that I lean on for different things. Um, and then I go to soul cycle, which is really <laughs> useful to me. Um, and it's the thing I do enough, uh, whenever I need to exert, when the emotional energy is overwhelming to me and I need to get it out, I go and actually do this one physical activity that I find, uh, the perfect transference, uh, between my emotional energy and physical energy that I can do in a way that doesn't, um, that I, that is packaged in a neat package for me. So, so that's what gets it out of your system for you. Like that's how you burn it off. Yeah, it's so I have to say I'm doing I I they just opened one by our house and any of these kind of uh cycling places but there's a combination for somebody like me who has, you know, undiagnosed, untreated and and objectively obvious ADD uh with um you know that can go into a dark room and listen to music and take it out on a bike and it moves so fast that I don't have a chance to get bored. Um, and it's just the perfect, it's predictable, it's consistent, it's, I can do it in any city. So if I go and give lectures, um, I can go to their city and go and do it. And it's, it's been, for me, it's really cool. Um, and I find that I solve a lot of problems in SoulCycle. How did you find that was the right match for you? Because I think a lot of women listening, and, and I see this with clients all the time, and I help them do that matching. Like, okay, let's peel back what, what really is driving the problem underneath and let's see how we can, what we can apply to intervene, right? Like I think the work that you and I are doing are, are very similar in that regard, but sometimes that matching process isn't quite so clear and there's some trial and error that needs to happen so that we can get a fix on, okay, so you want something high impact, running might be the thing for you, oh, running wasn't the thing for you because of these couple of reasons. It's not that you hate exercise. Let's just match you to the right one. How did you get there? It was trial and error. I think, um, you know, I am I'm not a huge exerciser. I don't, I, I enjoy the idea of exercise insofar as it's good for your body <laughs> and it's good for your mind. I was never somebody that was like, oh, I'm going to run. It's going to clear my mind, right? This is not how I function. Um, I get bored easily. I don't, I don't particularly find it to be, um, stimulating. I think it's hard. I can't breathe. <laughs> it's like, you know, whatever. So I don't, I'll find an excuse not to exercise. I'm a pretty social person. Um, but the truth is, is that being in my own head, like sometimes is good too, like as far as that goes. Um, uh, and I went by accident with a friend who had talked about it and I was like, all right, I'll go, you know, whatever. And she wasn't selling it to me like a clarity thing. She was selling it to me as a fun thing to do for physical activity. And I got there and I was like, wow, this speaks to all, I feel better for some reason than I had before. I don't know what it is. And I realized, um, so I don't breathe consistently regularly. Like I don't take regular deep breaths. I think that when you have a lot of um, like adrenaline pumping through your body, like you said, like I'm a pretty, I'm a, I'm a fierce advocate. I get excited about things. I, um, I have a lot of energy. I also, that kind of extroversion uh, means that I am, I am always surging catecholamines, the, the adrenaline that you have yep. in your body. That is a frequent, quick breath activity. Right. Of course. Um, I mean, your sympathetic nervous system is just revved up. Yes, you can say that. I can too. Yeah, <laughs> right. And so I 
I have to modulate that activity with something that is consistent and even. And ironically, um, Soul Cycle is that. It's for me. It's like an even way to breathe. It's an even way to exert energy. You can only go so fast. I can't tire myself out. I find that I breathe consistently through the entire class. And in that, I also think about a lot of things. Um, because, But my body is moving so fast that I don't drift away and get bored. Um, it's very much like being on Ritalin for your body. And, you know, that's kind of the way that I work well. But again, you have to know who you are to be able to find that place. Yes. Yoga isn't that thing for me because it is too slow. It's just I can't, I can't like wait for the next movement. It's like, I, I just, it's, it's just, it's, it's not enjoyable to me. Um, and there are probably other classes that I'd really like, like that, but I happen to be pretty happy right now. So I'm going to stay. Yeah, no, that's a great thing. But I think you're right. I mean, I think it's, it's about knowing who you are and then also the intention that you want to place on it, right? Like I, I hear about exercise or all the reasons why people aren't exercising and want to all the time. And it's my job to help figure out like, well, why are you not? Is it a mismatch? Is it a style thing? Is it a schedule thing? Is it, you know, what's the problem? Because it's not just not wanting to do exercise, right? Like, no. and, it's, and it's having to unpack those things and being really intentional and, and honest, you know, with yourself when you're on your own. Or, you know, I always ask my clients, like, you're going to have to be really honest with me in this process, like for this to work. For you to get where you want to go, you're going to have to be full disclosure here. And I think that a lot of it's also like, um, you know, the scheduling part of it is hard. I think that we are um, the energy part of it, the scheduling part of it. And especially if you have a lot of other things happening in your life. I mean, my husband is another example. And this is, you know, he's a huge, I don't want to say he's a type A person. He's somebody that um, is rigid in his priorities, right? So if something is a really big priority to him, it's a big priority to him. And he started doing SoulCycle too. And he has a different personality than I do. It's good for him for different reasons. But he's able to fit it into his life in a way that is acceptable to him, right? It's 45 minutes. It's near his office. He knows when it's going to start. He knows when it's going to end. He knows what's going to happen. He knows when he can get back to work. That is, that. those are his criteria for a successful relationship with exercise. You know, um, he knows that he's going to burn however many calories during that 45 minutes. And that efficiency is critical to him making it a priority. Um, He's never going to be a marathon runner that runs for six hours because he doesn't see himself as having six hours. I always, I like, I, I wonder about the women who do all this and run marathons. (laughs) I do. I don't know where they have that time. And I mean that in the most respectful way. Um, I don't I don't know. They wake up at like four in the morning to run. And there are some non-negotiables for me in sleep. It's one of them. Um, I'm never going to get up at four in the morning to run. Um, I'm not going to get up at four in the morning to go to Soul Cycle either, by the way. <laughs> so <laughs> I was going to say, hearing your earlier comments about exercise, I was guessing that. No, not so much. Um, but anyway, so, but I respect the ones that do. So Dara, here's a question, because I think scheduling is something that's such a challenge for people. And I think this will be something really beneficial to women listening. What are the nuts and bolts of how you and your husband and 
your nanny kind of look at things and schedule? Is it done on a weekly basis, a daily basis, on the fly? Like, what are you using for tools? Like, what makes you such an effective person in this regard? Okay, so first of all is um, consistent leadership of each section, right? So I make the schedule for the family, um, but it's not, I don't have like a blackboard like a lot of people have in their family house where they like have their blackboard and their dinners and all sorts of stuff. I don't plan dinners for the week. I don't, like that goes back to not caring about that kind of thing. If As long as food gets made and people eat, I'm good. Um, so I don't plan that. Uh, I, I use a Google Calendar because I find that to be the most efficient way to introduce it into my regular life. And my nanny has a handwritten calendar because she likes that. I generally, my husband and I have found it to be most efficient to ironically um, function independent of each other for the most part. So, um, and by that I mean that we decided a long time ago that his schedule was, it was too, it was too complicated for him to put his schedule into our lives because it was unpredictable. And predictability is really important when you're talking about a, a, a known way to do things that we manage around him. And then when he's available, he tells us. So, for example, um, I schedule my days with my my au pair now to who's home, who's going to do what, who's going to put the kids to bed, kind of like how that works. And then if my husband is home, he inserts himself in as the plus one. That is a much more reliable way for our family to function than to always be mad that he's changing the plans that he was supposed to have. (laughs) And it's and, you know, you can you know, there are plenty of people who kind of look at our family and are like, well, he's we call it a cast pass, right? <laughs> he has freed himself of all responsibility of putting kids to bed. But, you know, the truth is, um, for him, if he has a call that starts at 7.30 in the city, which is, you know, 20 minutes from my house, like, that that's not an unreasonable thing for him to have. And so, and it's 7.30, it's not midnight, you know? And so, you know, he tries to get home and he likes to be part of this, but it's the burden of, of, of being part of that schedule is hard. So, Again, that's where like I have, uh, like I, I understand my privilege in the opportunity that I can substitute substitute him for somebody else, right? Like I can yep. fill that gap with a person that is there to to do that, right? Um, I'm a big fan. Um, I listened to a podcast once by a guy, emergency doctor, that is um, who read the David Allen book, uh, "Getting Shit Done" or "Getting Things Done." Yep, and um, that that whole concept of um, the brain and it goes back to your emotional vortex and the emotional energy and housework is I very much try to have a place to put all of the things I'm managing in a way that they're not in my head. One of the biggest senses of clarity I had in building things, building the website and feminine and also stuff is that we spend a lot of time holding on to ideas and remembering to do things. The amount of energy we spend remembering to remember is <laughs> is amazing right like that that whole thing is like wait a minute i'm spending all day remembering to remember to take out the garbage tonight yet i can send an alert on my phone and never worry about it again you know yes Uh, i'm remembering to call the doctor in the morning but if i make a calendar invite and i do it two minutes before i'm supposed to call i don't have to remember to do that anymore and so i use a program called nirvana which is uh one of these kind of getting things done offshoots that allows me to bucket ideas and and things. So I just got new headshots. And I did that because you asked me for a picture. I have a website. (laughs) I wanted to have pictures that had my hair and makeup done. So I called the Glam Squad and they came to my house and they did my hair and makeup. It was wonderful. 
And then a friend of mine who's a photographer came over and took pictures. It wasn't a huge investment of anything except for my own energy to get it organized. And then I made a list in Nirvana of all the places I was going to put those headshots, (laughs) right? So I had seven places when I could sit and think about where the headshots were going to go. I was like, there's seven places that I have a headshot? I didn't know that, you know? (laughs) And so instead of remembering to remember to send out the headshots, I had a list. Yes. And it so frees up things. And I'm, I'm laughing because I use remember the milk, same, same thing. Right. And I think to some people, they would open up, remember the milk, look at my computer and go, you have 282 things to do. Right. But a lot of them are recurring things. Like I don't want to have to remember, take out the trash on Monday night. Like, right. I don't, like just remind me like, and I can check it off and it's done. And I don't have to think about it again until next Monday night. And then if you forget on Monday night, Tuesday morning, you put it in and you remember it for the next week and you don't get mad at yourself. Yeah. And it, I'm also not waking up in the middle of the night thinking, I've got to remember to call so-and-so. I've got to remember to do this. And occasionally there are things that, you know, I, I try to take time towards the end of the day and then in the evening and try to think, like, what are all the loose ends from the day? Like, what are all the things that I didn't get done or want to get done or need to respond to? And they all go into Remember the Milk. How many emails do you have in your inbox? Uh, good question. Good question. My inbox is 56. Okay. So, which is one page on Google, generally. It's a yeah. Little bit that, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So, that's one of my big things. So, somebody posted on Facebook yesterday or the day before, a friend of a friend or a friend of mine, whatever it was, what do I do with the 22,000 emails I have unread? I said, you delete them. And start you delete them now at once. <laughs> Because there's nothing there that's important. Because if it was important, somebody would have called you, right? So, like, that concept of, like, deleting emails, like, is shocking to people. Um, but, like, you got to, like, have an archive system and think of your file folders and inbox zero, right? So, like, the other thing about it is email is not a reminder system, right? So, like, if you leave an email to remind you to do something, all you're doing is rereading it and reminding yourself to remember. So, you don't leave an email to remind you to do something. You put it into a place where it gets reminded and then you move the email out of your inbox. So like being an inbox zero person is a really useful skill. And I am the, now I'm very good at that, but I'm the opposite when it comes to um, protected time away from my computer or phone. Right. So my problem with being an inbox zero person is that I'm I'm constantly checking email. And I one of my New Year's resolutions that I haven't started because I'm giving myself permission until January 1st (laughs) is to somehow cohort my technology um, usage outside of my every minute of every day experience. And one of the big things I'm going to do is take my cell phone out of my bedroom. Um, And I'm not ready to do that. Okay. Uh, you know, Ariana Huffington talks about it all the time. It's like, you know, you need an alarm clock. We got rid of alarm clocks and we put our alarms on our phones. And what that means is our phones are always next to our beds. Yes. Dangerous, and, dangerous territory for a lot of reasons, whether it's just like pissing your pineal gland off or or just feeding workplace addiction. No, falling asleep checking Twitter is not a way to fall asleep. It's just not, <laughs> you know. And so, especially in this day and age where you are like, it's, you know, you're fatigued from all of the outrage. And so 
I think that back to just kind of like organization and putting things into buckets and figuring out how I'm going to survive. Um, I'm going to take my cell phone out of my bedroom starting January 1st. Um, I'm also going to try and not check my email 24 hours a day. Again, that's very hard for me because I enjoy being in box zero. Um, but, but then this is where I would challenge you as a coach and think like, well, what is your intention? Right? Like, what do you want the outcome to be? And I then want kind of my, reverse engineering from there. No, my, 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 my goal is, and this is, you know, separate from my job. I'm really good at, at, at compartmentalizing my work. I have not yet gotten there where I can compartmentalize my tech, my information overload. And right now there is so much information to absorb um, at a fire hose rate yeah. that if you are open to absorbing it at the rate by which it's being disseminated, um, you can, it, it's almost enough to crush any other sense of, of self-care or strategy that you have. You know, it's funny, you say fire hose and the image that immediately came to mind as I was listening to you was more like, you know, in Shawshank Redemption, like the, yes. the giant shit pipe. Storm. Yeah, like the, <laughs> like the pipe full of shit that he like crawls oh, out of yeah. that's human sized. It's transcended fire hose at this point. It's so hard to keep your sanity and right. keep your focus. Right. So Very anyway, cool. so that's that's kind of my, my goal for the next year. So everyone has things to work on is all there is to it. Um, and that's what I need to work on. I appreciate your honesty because I think sometimes, you know, and I, I try to explain this to my guests before they arrive, that this podcast is meant to be sort of a no pedestal zone. Like none of us as women are doing this perfect. We're constantly having to figure things out and rebalance things. You know, with my clients, I look at five key areas, right? Like I'm constantly checking in with them about diet, rest, exercise, stress management, and social relationships. Right. And even just within those five components, like every two weeks, it's like a whole new story sometimes. It's like, okay, we got the diet and the exercise and the rest on track, but then socially something just blew up and now it's affecting those other areas so we're all figuring it out and I deeply appreciate you being so honest about it yeah I mean I think that the the benefit or the drawback of being somebody that's pretty energetic is that I can burn for a long time um and I can I can kind of and then what's ironic is you know so if you ask my kids my favorite hobby do you have any idea what they would say I have no idea it's napping. What? Yeah. So if you ask my kids now, some of it's not fair because I'm an emergency medicine doctor. So um, they forget that years of napping were the um, were making up for the gaps in sleep that I didn't get when regular people were sleeping. So I, I, I kind of am, I've inherited like a, a bias from them. They think that I'm just persistently asleep. Um, which is funny, uh, but you know, but now I don't really work a crazy schedule anymore. And so I don't really get to, but I still enjoy napping. And a lot of the reasons I nap is to re invigorate myself. Um, and it's in a way that is unspoken. Like I, I don't like when I'm sleeping, I can't be reading. I can't be talking. I can't be engaging. I can't be thinking. I can just be, so I'm like a, I'm a, I'm a fierce snapper. Um, and, um, my kids, think it's the most important thing to me and my husband we both go to sleep a lot and then we just let them watch tv (laughs) that's by the way another truth in our house 
We have been known to come awake from a nap and find children in bed with Doritos. It's fine. <laughs> They'll live to tell about it. They have survived. You know, they know the Netflix password and they have a menu of marshmallows and Doritos. But it's a Sunday, so why not? You know? That is fantastic. So, and yet, true. So, Dara, I have a question. You mentioned how you can burn for a long time. Have you ever experienced full-on burnout? And if so, how did you come back from it? I, yes. I think that full-on burnout is no. But I have reached um, unbelievable levels of frustration and understood when I was in the very wrong environment, right? So I think burnout happens when you are... um, trying to solve problems that are either unsolvable or you're in an environment that's the opposite of your energy, right? So like, um, you know, I've worked in environments where my talents, things I'm really good at, were completely not valued, right? And so that is an exhausting experience because you're constantly either changing yourself, which is horribly exhausting, or you're doing stuff that's not valued and then doing the other stuff that is, right? Yes. And so um, one of the most important things I've learned in time is making sure that what I'm doing is matching with my energy and my value and then also my, my mandates. Right. So, you know, as an emergency medicine doctor and, you know, that's what I am at my core and the job that I was trained to do, you know, first and foremost, um, the challenges as an emergency medicine doctor are pretty interesting. And the schedule for most women in emergency medicine is relatively untenable um, for people in, in, in my with my set of, of life choices. So, you know, a lot of women in EM have partners that have flexible schedules or don't, you know, kind of can, can kind of help them support like non-traditional timing. Others don't, right. We have a lot of women in EM who are married to service members whose partners leave for months on the time and deployment. And I, I, I can't for the life of me understand how they survive because I, I don't know. I mean, I guess I would survive if that was mine, but they're amazing. They're amazing um, and, and, and alive, you know, <laughs> and have happy, healthy children. So, and they do it with their own set of, of, of people in villages. They're generally live close to family and they have au pairs and all that other stuff. But anyway, so um, one of the things that I've realized is the way that I function best is in this kind of hodgepodge of millennial Um, entrepreneurship that allows me to be very effective in large scale um, in a way that allows me to use my energy wisely and gives back to me um, in a way that makes me feel valued. And that doesn't happen as much in traditional medicine as it does in the other things that I'm doing. And so a lot of the, I would say, burnout that I faced has been in realizing that I was in the wrong environment and trying to find a way to find the right environment for me. Now, that's not always easy to do, right? No, so I don't I've pretend. I've been through this process. I right. mean, my initial career was working in trouble debt restructuring and bankruptcy. Right. So I don't <laughs> I, I don't act like everybody can just say, okay, I'm gonna go to a part-time job so that I can create a new business and I can you know, find this and do that. And I, that's again, back to the kind of privileges that I have a little bit in that I get to kind of take some leaps of faith on my own time and energy that I may not have had to have if I was the primary breadwinner of our family. Um, 
But I also get to create environments that help other people stay as the primary breadwinners of their families. And for me, that's really important, right? So I kind of use, to me, that's kind of the ebb and flow of what I do is if I can disseminate policies and, and, you know, expectations that allow other women to feel like they have a channel of advocacy in their world. So when they are a third trimester pregnant female in emergency medicine, they can go to their boss and say, listen, you know, Feminem says that, you know, or this resource on Feminem says that, you know, uh, women in the third trimester should not be mandatory scheduled for overnight shifts. Um, it's not me. It's this is what the research shows, you know, or yeah. this is what the, the, the policy leader in the, in the specialty shows. If I can do that, then that is invigorating to me and that negates the burnout that I would feel um, if I was in a frustrating situation. And so I think that's how – that is some element of, like, self-care or of, of knowing my truth. Um, but, you know, I find that being placed in unchangeable circumstances and circumstances that are in direct conflict of your needs uh, are two great ways to burn out and – figuring out some way to change those if possible is probably the best way to success. Yes. And this is, this is something I face and, and have to help people unravel. One of the things that's become a, a go-to resource for me is something like strength finder, which, you know, it, it's a book where you, you get a coupon to take an online test and it, it takes under an hour and it will deliver your top five strengths and so for anyone that becomes my private client beyond just a single smart start session, I really encourage them to take that because we can use it as part of the process. And I think a lot of people, you know, I think I was finding for the first half of my practice, so four or five years, that people were really not in touch with what what activities they derived energy from and or there was a big mismatch between their their natural strengths that are easy for them to call on and use and then what they're doing in terms of whether it be work or volunteer situation or even just in family life. And there was all of this friction between those things. So it's so important to know that about yourself, like know where your energy is being derived from and how to then best harness it. So remember I told you that I love to nap? Yes. Uh <laughs> So when you're me, you can sleep all the time, anytime. But one of the things that I find to be the most um, fulfilling, I guess, things I do is I love to sleep next to my children. Now, that's really funny, right? Because it's really, um, I, I like, I'm happy for them to come into our bed. I, you know, we'll take naps together, whatever it is. And the reason is that it's a kind of an unconscious way to be with them. It's like, to me, it's like a way to efficiently manage time that was otherwise lost. Um, but there's an energy that's exchanged, I think, just like, you know, cuddling with one of my kids while we're taking a nap that is, um, tank filling for me. Like I look at it, how do you fill your tank, right? This is how I fill my tank. And I was already taking the naps and I already had the kids and I already enjoyed being with the kids. And it was kind of this very subtle energy exchange. Yes. And it was unspoken and it was unforced and it was un, it was effortless and it was good for both of us. And so, you know, I realized, you know, if I worked an overnight shift or if I came home at midnight, if there was a kid in my bed, I was like, cool. Like, I didn't kick him out. You know, people don't, <laughs> lots of kids, lots of people don't want the kids in their bed. I get it. You know, they have better sleep when they don't have somebody kicking them in the head. I totally get that. <laughs> I'm not saying I don't like totally, I like, I like unfettered sleep as well. But 
you know, there's um for me there was that was a that was a thing that filled me, especially when I was working really hard and I wasn't home very much. Um, it was a thing that allowed me to fit in some kid time when everybody else when we were all really just sleeping. You know what I mean? Yeah, those intangibles are so important, and it's it's so funny because I I recently had a conversation. I don't know if if I've mentioned to you previously. I'm on the mission to collect thirty three thousand handwritten task lists from women. Wow! Um, and I hope to transform them one into some conversation about how we as women are balancing obligation versus desire, and then eventually use them in an art installation. But wow. I, sh- but I share that because I think sometimes like energy is such a, like a nebulous and almost like woo woo concept, but we, we are all making these decisions about how we spend our energy and how we rebuild our energy on a daily basis. And the conversation I had was around, um, you know, women hearing about the project and trying to be helpful. Really, it was coming from a place of helpfulness saying, well, can't women just send you a PDF of their task list? Right. And I was like, no, because there is something so fundamentally different than having someone oh. hand you a PDF versus opening your mailbox and there is a handwritten task list from your high school exchange student friend from, you know, 1993 who sent her list from Sweden. Right. <laughs> right? Like, it's a, like, yes, they are the same thing, empirically speaking, but totally different, totally different vibe, totally different effect, totally stoke you in a different way. Right. So I love that. And I just, now I have this like image as I'm looking at your picture on Skype while we record this, with just like kids all around you. Right. It's my life. I love it. Mm -hmm. And Dara, I want to ask you some questions that I like to ask all of my guests And really, I think I'm building some sort of sonic quilt here. How would you define being a modern woman? Um, I think that, to me, modern, right? I think that we have no idea what our landscape holds right now for women, right? So I think that this is a very, (laughs) we are are in the era of the woman. I think we're the end of men. But I also think that that is, like, uncharted territory, right? I, um... I think that we're at a time when, for me, a modern woman is somebody that is never, like, can do anything that they want to do and is forced to do nothing that they don't want to do within the confines of normal societal pressure, right? So, yes, you have to go to work. Yes, you have to pay taxes. Yes, you have to, like, you know, those things. But um, it's somebody that is not limited in their um, in their opportunities simply by their gender. And that sounds like a really kind of cliche thing to say. But it's still very true that it's limiting, right? And yeah. I was, if you kind of go back to what I said about my mom, you know, and my parents, um, I really did not understand that being a girl when I was a kid meant that I had to do different choices. I know that I had different opportunities, that I was going to be a mom and I wanted to get married and I wanted to have all that stuff. But I didn't think that it meant that I had to choose a different career or that I had to look at my life any differently. And I think that that's what it is to be a modern woman, right, is to know that the landscape of choice is yours and how you choose to live your life is your is, is your choice. But I also hope that's what it is to be a modern man, right? 
Um, and I think that we've never spent a lot of time. I mean, my friend Josh Loves, who wrote a book called All In, talks a lot about uh, maternity, uh, paternity leave and parenting from the father's perspective and modern modern fatherhood. And um, I think that defining the modern man would probably have it would probably be a lot more useful in a lot of ways than defining the modern woman, because the modern woman is the woman that does everything that everyone else did now if she wants to. And none of the stuff she doesn't if she doesn't the modern man. I have no idea what that looks like (laughs) or what it's about to become. Like, to your point, we're really on a precipice right now. It's, It's super interesting, to say the least. So given that context, what would you like to see modern women give more of a shit about? I would really, really like modern women to try to change the world for the women behind them in a way that is sustainable, right? Um, I think that I personally fundamentally believe that the experience of being a woman, a woman in medicine for me, but a woman in society uh, is probably the best barometer for what society needs, actually, um, as it, from a nurturing perspective, from a justice perspective, from an experience perspective, from a everything perspective. And I just really think that we need to have women in power, uh, making choices, making decisions, um, because I think women make better decisions um, from a much more kind of holistic perspective. And so I don't know if it means women running for office. I don't know if it means women... Um, writing policies. I don't know if it means women advocating for other women behind them for things like parental leave or promotion or anything. But uh, the minute you have an opportunity to do so, I very much want modern women to advocate for those who are not yet able to advocate for themselves. Well, what was it His Holiness the Dalai Lama had said? Like the Western world will be, wait, the, the world will be saved by the Western woman. Right. And I and I, I really, truly believe that is true. Me too. Me too. <laughs> and then on the flip side, what would you like to see modern women give less of a shit about? What other people think about them. Like, I don't care if you think that my priorities are good or my whatever. I don't care if I look your part or I don't really care about how you feel if my, you know communication style is brazen or whatever. I, I I accept that there are times by which you have to modulate your behavior and potentially your look. But I just wish that um, we didn't need external validation as much as we do. Got it. What's freed you up in regards to that? The first most liberating thing I ever did, aside from being raised by my parents and marrying my husband, were both different ways for me to feel validated in my own worth. Um, is that I really got to know my good parts and my bad parts. And I think I had a, I had a coach for a period of time, and I think that was really helpful. Um, and understanding where I was going to be successful in places I was not. Um, but I think that I understand the environments where I am not going to be successful anymore. And those are real. They exist. And that's not a, a testament to whether or not I can be successful but I will, I am not, I, I'm the kind of person that thinks I can do anything, right? I have my real estate broker's license. I have my, I own like three different businesses. I might even write a book. I don't know what I'm doing with my life, right? I feel like I can do a lot of things well. What I can't do well is thrive in environments that do not value my skill set because those environments are not going to change. And so that clarity 
was probably the best thing I ever had. So is that shifted how you balance, like if you took your work life and divided it, does, has that ratio of like how much you're the CEO and founder of Feminem versus spending time in medicine, has that changed for you? Yes. Oh, to fit, yes. Like a lot. Like I, I made a deliberate shift when I realized that. Nice. Nice. Brave. <laughs> Privileged, Right. So that's what people say. They say I'm brave and I say I'm privileged because I could do that. So the first step is understanding that there's a there's a shift that needs to happen. The second step is to be able to make it happen, right? So I um like so in in January, I went stopped working full-time as a doctor, meaning that I am no longer full-time employed by my institution. I still see patients in the ER and I love my environment and I feminem I grew feminem and I started a conference and I did all this other stuff. And the reason all of that um, came to fruition was I realized that I was going to be more successful wholly um, trying to change the world for women in emergency medicine outside of a singular institution than I ever was going to be in my own. And it wasn't my institution per se. It was traditional formal medicine um, because I've created a speaker's bureau that got more women on the stage than ever before. And you know, if you try to get an institution to inclu- include more women in grand rounds, you could spend four years writing policies and procedures and convincing old white guys to do that. And <laughs> I just don't want to convince old white guys to do anything anymore. Right. <laughs> I don't. I want to do what I want to do. And I want to change the world and the things that I think are right. And I want to convince women that they have a voice and I want to spend time with my kids and I don't want to be given a schedule by somebody else. You know, you get all my baggage in the same podcast, which I think is good. <laughs> I love it. I think the most defining quote for this whole podcast is, I don't want to convince old white guys to do anything anymore. Oh, my God. I am, I am like, I have, I have a very clear idea of what is going to happen to white men in America. And they are not, they just have to, I mean, they have to pass on. Buckle up. They need to buckle up. (laughs) Well, I think that, you know, and I I say this in a very kind of overarchingly biased way, but, you know, it's, it's like, you know, privilege is hard and letting go of it is hard and nobody wants to let go of the privilege that they have and all sorts of stuff. But, you know, like, I'm not going to convince them that women are valuable all the time. The ones that believe they're valuable, believe they're valuable. The ones that don't and that have put their women downhill and let the shit go down and all this other stuff. Like, I can't tell you that it's not my choice to have children. Like, I'm not making a unilateral personal choice that is, you know, gonna, that should appropriately affect my career. Like, I can't defend why you need to believe that maternity leave is a societal benefit and that childcare is good for everybody. And that, you know, yes, it's going to cost you money because it costs me money when you have your back out and (laughs) I don't complain. Right. When your prostate acts up, oh, please, I could go on my, I could go on my tangent for a very long time. <laughs> but I think it's, it, it's that statement alone just encapsulates so much. And oh, Dara, I, this has been such an amazing conversation and I am so pleased to shine a light and, and help get the word out about all the amazing things that you're doing. But before I let you totally off the hook for the day, what do you most want Levital Core Salon listeners to know? That knowing who you are and knowing what like makes you tick is the first step to being whole and to not ignore any of the pieces that, that make you whole, 
like whatever that is. I don't care if it's skydiving your kids. I don't care if it's basket weaving or Botox. I don't know what it is, but it's something, right? <laughs> um, but also that letting go of the shit you do not care about does not make you a lesser person. It just makes you closer to being sane. Like it is okay to not care about what your kids have for lunch as long as they're getting fed. Like, and if you let go of it, you don't have to manage how the other person is doing it. Like, I, I do think those are really important. Um, it's okay to, to have time for yourself and it's okay to not need to be the perfect, I mean, you don't have to be the perfect dieter and exerciser and look great all the time, but you do need to have like feed your tank with good things um, and whole things. And so that's kind of all of it packaged into one. Oh, amazing. I can hear the mic drop in. Yeah. Uh, and I know I have all of your social links and things like that. So I'll make sure that they make their way to the show notes as as well as all the resources that we've talked about, books or apps or things like that. But what's your preferred way for women who are interested in learning more about you and your work to get in touch with you? So, I mean, Feminem, I think, is a really great resource. It's certainly um, applicable to women outside of medicine, outside of emergency medicine, um, although some of it's, you know, specific to us. So I think that the first thing to do is you can go on there. Uh, you can email me through Feminem at DaraCast at Feminem.org, or just Twitter is always a great way to find somebody. I think that it's easy and, and really direct. Um, and then beyond that, I think, like I said, I think Twitter is probably right now in the most pervasive way to communicate and follow somebody um but right now i'm doing a lot of ranting on twitter not as much as my friend esther chu who's another emergency doctor who rants <laughs> at least once a day but uh i kind of I, i've actually taken my profanity um trigger off so i <laughs> today i cursed I, i'm okay with that if nobody's gonna hire me as a doctor because i curse then they don't want a really good emergency doctor i guess I love it. You know, it was so funny because my formative training and definition of what professionalism looked like, you know, was through PwC and right. being an accountant. And so it was like, you might as well have starched your underwear, you know, your your suits were blue or black or maybe dark brown. And I I never really fit in in that culture. I was always sort of getting in trouble for my haircuts or what color tights I was wearing or something was wrong. But I did the work. And it's funny, like when I became a coach, I was like, well, I guess I should be, you know, buttoned up and I shouldn't swear, even though outside of work, I swear like a sailor. Right. And I think like once I just embraced fully being who I am, it just made everything so much easier. And being honest and being truthful is really the critical thing that people are looking for, both in a coach and in a person that they want to talk to. I mean, you know, like it's exhausting to not be yourself. Um, and... I, the last thing I'm going to say is I turned 46 weeks ago, right? And I have, I'm an emergency medicine doctor. I see people live and die all the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. I deliver babies and I pronounce people dead. Like I, you can't have a more existentially appropriate job than me. I have a kid who survives an organ transplant and I was the living donor. Um, I find that I don't get to like take a single day for granted, you know? Yes. And so why would I ever want to live a single day not in my own truth? As long as I'm doing a good job and I'm making money and I'm raising my family and I'm, you know, kind of being good for society, then everything else will fall into place. Yes. Oh, Dara, thank you so much. You're welcome. There's... Thanks for having me. This has been really fun. 
Yay. I'm so glad. There are so many amazing nuggets in this conversation for the listeners. And thank you for your wisdom. And thank you for what you're doing for women. And especially the women who care for all the rest of the women when we have health crises. That's, That's the plan is to keep those women at work because at the end of the day, you want more of them there when you need them. Yes, we do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, it's Kara again. Did you think I would let you get out of here without reminding you that all of the resources that Dara and I mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes at levitalcoresalon.com. So that's L-E, vital, C-O-R-P-S, salon.com. So you don't have to worry about writing them down. You don't have to worry about remembering them or sending an email to yourself. You can just go to that website at any time and all of the episodes and the, the resources are there and you can click right through to find them. So again levitalcoresalon.com and if you want to be reminded as new shows roll out one of the best things that you can do is sign up for the newsletter while you're there so that again all happens at levitalcoresalon.com thank you so much for listening without you there wouldn't be a show it would just be me kind of talking to myself so I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule and Hopefully you found a little nugget in this episode to help you move closer to having a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. And speaking of joy, people that bring me joy in this podcast are my producer, Craig Snyder, Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone for writing my most excellent theme song, The High Dials for playing it. And definitely big ups to Darlene Victoria, who is my... Gal Friday, my right hand in terms of all of the technical online pieces of this podcast and really making that come together and bringing so much ease to my life. So I just want to shout out that whole team that helps make this show possible. And don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let the bullshit or burnout slow you down. (laughs) 